Uh, so continuing in Colossians this morning, we're continuing in Paul's apostolic example. So as an apostle, he tells the church what his desire is for them. And that becomes our pastoral example as well. So last week we talked about being a steward of the word of God and a steward of the people of God. Uh, and this becomes our pastoral pattern. And so there's a general concern that we finished in chapter one with last week. But this week in chapter two, there's a specific concern for Colossae. Now he's going to get to the issue at hand, because up until this point, we've alluded to the fact that there are false teachers. We've alluded to the fact that there are doctrines coming in that want to rob the church of its assurance in Christ. Now he's going to get to the meat of the letter. Now he's going to get to what's really going on, the issue at hand in chapter two. So there's a bit of a transition. And we sung this song, Blessed Assurance, intentionally. So I want you to be thinking about that and to rest in the assurance that we have in Christ. The songs that we sing, do we believe them? And we have to think as well. Do we have the truth? Do we have the gospel? And when you meet people who talk about a Christ and talk about a Bible and and talk about things like salvation, there's a litmus test. Because if you want to know if someone has the true gospel, do they really have the gospel? There's an important question everyone has to answer. Do you have assurance in this life and in life to come? Where do you go when you die and why? This will really get to the heart of what someone believes. Because the heart of every false gospel is a lack of assurance. In every false gospel, there is a teacher who wants to sow seeds of doubt so that you become dependent on them. No false teacher, no false religion, no cult can offer absolute assurance. And this is where Paul is. As they consider and as they weigh these other philosophies that are coming at them from the culture at large and from those maybe even within the church, they have to consider, do I have assurance? What does what I believe mean for my life now and for my life in eternity? Because if you don't have assurance, if you have a false gospel, there's a sense as if God's undecided about your fate. God is waiting for something from you, some greater understanding, some greater work, so you could possibly earn some higher level of of his grace. This is what's at play here. And I know many of you have come out of religions like this. Many of you have struggled with assurance because you grew up with people telling you that you had to do more. You had to believe more. There were more works that were needed. There were additional beliefs that, that, that had to be attained to in addition to faith in Christ. And so this comes down to the same question for everyone. So when I engage with someone who has a different belief system and essentially a different gospel, I always come down to the same question. Okay, before you leave, if you walk out this door and get hit by a car, what happens after that? It's the same question to everyone. I've asked this to Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, across the board. The answer is always the same. Well, I'm very hopeful, but I'm not sure. One of the Jehovah's Witness guys who left my driveway, as they usually do, almost with dust behind them like in the uh, cartoons, said, well, I'm 99% sure, but I'm not perfect, that I will be saved. I had a long conversation with a Seventh-day Adventist man. He said, I, I, I'm really sure, but if I don't repent before that car hits me, then maybe there's an unforgiven sin that the investigative judgment of Jesus has not atoned for yet. That's um, 
crazy doctrine where Jesus is still bleeding and atoning for every one of our sins in, in heaven, the official doctrine. Um, Muslim friend of mine asked him the same thing. He had to say, inshallah, if Allah wills. Because Allah is capricious. He could send you to heaven. He could, se- he could send you to paradise. He could send you to hell. Uh, and there, there really is no rhyme or reason to that. You hope you do enough. But even in, in Islam, they don't know for sure that Muhammad is in paradise. Because it's really whether God wants to tip the scales in your favor or not. No different in the Roman Catholic Church. You have engaged with many people of the Roman Catholic faith. And they say, they say a lot of the same words, but what happens when you talk to them about assurance? I don't know. Have I done enough penance? Have I done enough good things? They can't even say for certain that the Pope is in heaven. He may still be atoning for, many of them should still be atoning for their sins. Uh, many of them are certainly not in heaven. But they can't say for sure. And this even hits closer to home. Because many people who are Christians, who have the same Bible and the same belief system, they follow a works-based gospel that, that tells you that unless you do more, that at any point in time, you might commit the unforgivable sin and therefore reverse what Christ has done for you. It's tragic. There's also prosperity-based gospels that tell you, Unless you believe enough and unless you do enough and, and, and unless you've sown enough money in prayers and, and, and good deeds, then you can't have assurance unless you do more and do more. And then you've got some charismatic faith that will tell you that you can put your faith in Christ, but you're not sealed until you speak in tongues. None of these things we see biblically. And Paul gives us a very different picture. Because the real question that I have for you, regardless of everything else out there, do you have assurance and why? This is essential for us. Do you have assurance? If the Lord comes back at this moment and he can come back at any moment. If God forbid you do not make it to your bed tonight, do you have assurance and why? Because the only answer that will give you assurance is that Jesus completed it. Jesus paid it all. It is finished on the cross in him. And by faith in him, that is where our assurance comes from. Do you have assurance? And hopefully as we walk through this this morning, you'll be able to answer that question. And if you do not or cannot answer that question in the affirmative, please see me afterward. So that's really what's at play here. But there's also something else. There are big stakes here. Paul uses rich language like riches and treasure because every culture throughout history has always sought after riches. Men of power seeking glory and to accumulate things for them for themselves. This is the temptation of Israel. We touched on this Wednesday night in Bible study that the king should not go after much silver and gold because it will turn his heart away. Men seek after treasures. That's what we do. But if you have real treasure that moth and rust cannot destroy, and you have an eternal crown, you have to be careful not to go after fool's gold and costume jewelry. We have real, unperishable treasure in him. And this is Paul's desire for this young church in Colossae. He wants them to know the riches that you have in Christ. Men seek after riches, but I'm going to tell you what is, what is the greatest treasure of all. And we're going to build on some of these themes in chapter one. We're going to look back to some of the things that Paul has said in chapter one, but he's going to add something additional. Assurance 
for themselves in Christ and also encouragement for perseverance. How do you know that you're that you're saved and how do you continue in your salvation? That's what we're going to deal with this morning. And this is something near and dear to my heart because this is something I want you to know. I want you to have assurance in your faith in Christ. I want you to know that your treasure and fullness is in Christ. If you have Christ, you are full. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing can be taken away. This is what Paul wants to encourage them with. Because the false teachers would want nothing more than to take away from the fullness that they have in Christ. So if you would open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. And read verses 1 through 10. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary uh, elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Your saints standing firmly on our foundation, our savior our Redeemer, our Lord, our Mediator, our High Priest, our Prophet, our King. Citizens of His kingdom, and we can only come before you because of Him. Lord, help us to be people who have confidence in Christ, our identity in Christ, our assurance in Christ, our hope in Christ, our joy in Christ, our love in Christ. The love which you've shown us by sending your Son for us, we would show to one another that we would be bound together in that love, that we would stand firm in the truth of the gospel, that we would be able to spot and refute error, that we may toil in this ministry, that we may labor to encourage one another, that the day of your coming, the day of your judgment, we would stand before you, mature, recognizing that because of Christ, we are spotless, without blemish, holy and above reproach because of what he has done for us. It is in him, by him, and for him that we do all things, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. So we begin chapter 2 with 4. 4, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Whenever you see 4, Know that there is something before the four that we should be looking back to. So this is a really difficult passage to divide up. I went back and forth a few different times about how we were going to split this up in preaching. But this is tough because this is one continual uh, thought that that Paul's working through, but it's successive. 
So when we begin with four, we have to pick up at the end of the last chapter. So he talks about his his ministry, stewarding the people of God, stewarding the word of God and the mystery that has been given to the Gentiles, which is Christ in them. Picking up in verse 28, him, Christ, him, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. Struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. And we talked about the pastoral charge of struggling in this. The word here is the same root of agonizing. I toil for this. I struggle for this. This is this important. It's the purpose of everything I do. Now he goes into that struggle and what the the content of that struggle is. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have. There's this godly toil within Paul, physically, spiritually, emotionally, for their sake. My entire life is devoted to this because this is of this utmost importance. If I die in this cell, if I die in Rome, she eventually will. I don't want any of my time to be wasted. I want you to know that I struggled with every fiber of my being and even the energy within me was given to me by God, a gospel given to me by God. I am a steward of that and he gave me energy. To continue in this. And there's a great struggle for those in Colossae, but also Laodicea. We talked about this in, in the first week in Colossians. There's the, the, the Lycus Valley, kind of three cities, uh, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. These are neighbors, and they kind of share culture, and they share, they share people. Um, and so there's a concern for the church in Colossae, but this letter was to be spread around to the others. And we know that if you jump over... To chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who we met in chapter 1, he's one of them. He comes out of Colossae, goes to Rome, tells Paul the concerns that are going on. Paul writes back to Colossae, but tells them, spread this letter around. There's other people, there's other false teachers that are getting into other churches. Here's what he says, uh, Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. What is Epaphras doing? Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Why does Epaphras struggle? That you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. This is a good servant. This is someone who loves his church family well. Always struggles for them. So that they will have assurance. That they will stand mature. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. And for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. This is not... An issue that's affecting one church, but it's also not a concern that's limited to one church. Paul is caring for all the churches in the area, as do the servants. There's There's a unity here. You all are united in Christ, no matter whose home or building that you meet in. But you all need to be protected. You all have to hear the same gospel. So this is what what's at play here. And typically what would happen in these early churches is that a letter would be written to Colossae. And it would encourage Colossae. And as soon as they could, they would copy it down and they would pass it on to other churches so that they would be encouraged as well. When the apostles speak, they listened. And so for us, when the apostles speak, we listen. So Paul says that he, he struggles for them and for all who have not seen me face to face. So we address this in day one. A lot of people think that Paul never went to Colossae. Uh, I don't think it's that definitive. Uh, some knew him, some didn't. There are some who had not seen him face to face, but either way, even if I'm not with you, I still care about you. I still struggle for you. And this struggle is going to set up our instruction. The, ins- the, the struggle describes this in- instruction here. here. Here's what he's agonizing for. And he's going to run through 
this beautiful string of words, this kind of linguistic manifesto in verse two and three on Christian fullness in Christ. Here's what he struggles for. He struggles for encouragement, for unity, for, for assurance and knowledge in Christ. So he struggles for you in the Lycus Valley that their hearts may be encouraged. We've talked about this often, but the, the heart and the, and the Jewish understanding, the ancient Near Eastern world is, it's your inner self, your thoughts, your, your, your feelings. And if you minister to the heart, the rest will follow. One commentator, I love what he says, uh, William Hendrickson says, the heart is the fulcrum of feeling and faith and the wellspring of words and action. Say that five times fast. The heart is the fulcrum of feeling and faith and the wellspring of words and action. Paul wants their heart, their inner being, everything that they are to be encouraged, to be strengthened. Being knit together in love and these things go together. Each one of you in your individual hearts, I want you to be encouraged. But at the same time, I want you knit together. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling in and of yourselves, but you do it in the body. You are knit together. Uh, this is a, a very strong picture in the Greek. It, it means to be held together, to be united. And the, the sense of it is that you are together in the same mind through instruction. So because you have been uh, given the same gospel in the same instruction, now you become one heart and you become one mind. And you are not to be separated. And all that is in love. Because the love that God showed them by sending his son, the love that the son showed them by dying on the cross and suffering for them, that they might be united to him, united to one another. That love that we have been shown, we show to one another. And that is what holds us together. It is the binding agent of the church. If you don't believe me, look at Paul in verse 314. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So sad how often this is either abused and everything made about love that is not tied to sound teaching or it's just forgotten. We don't really love the body. I'm encouraged to be in a church of people who loves each other well. And this is essential because it's what binds us. The love of God, the love of Christ for us, the love that we have for one another. And love for the saints, it is invaluable. But why is that important? Why do we need to be encouraged? Why do we need to be bound together to reach all the riches? Reach is something that we're striving for, something that you desire to go toward. He wants you to reach all the riches. He wants you to keep continuing in the faith so you can reach all the riches. The fullness and assurance of, of the body. He describes the Christian life as one of riches. This is the bounty that we have in Christ. This is the power of the gospel. And I want you to reach it. I want you to know it so well that you reach out and grab it and it becomes yours. That you are in complete assurance of who you are in Christ. This is why I struggle for you. This is where my heart is. This is why I want you to be encouraged. This is why I want you to be knit together because together you can remind each other of the riches that you have in Christ. Because what is more valuable in a lost and broken world than eternal assurance. Which, what is more valuable than knowing that you have everything because you have nothing but Christ? 
And if you have that, you are rich. You are rich forever. And no one can take that from you. So how do we know about those that that riches? How does that come together? Because of the mystery that has been revealed to them. He wants you to reach all the riches, full assurance of, of, of understanding. He wants your mind to know and be fully assured of what Christ has done and who you are in him. And the knowledge of God's mystery. Be assured in Christ and know this, this mystery. Last week, he said that the mystery is Christ in you. The greatest mystery ever revealed. He gives a much more uh, succinct definition this time. What is the mystery? Christ. That's it. It's not it, but that is all that is needed. Nothing to be added. Christ. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the creator and sustainer of all things, the reconciler of all things, the living one, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the judge of all, the king of all, the final prophet, the final priest, him, Christ. This is the mystery. One where all the secret is, everything that's, that's been hidden, everything is worked up to this point. Christ. All of God's promises find their yes in him. This is what the assurance is based on. And he doesn't end there in case they forgot. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, we've seen all the past couple weeks. He is creator of all things. Nothing has been created outside of him. And him we proclaim, warning all men, teaching all men with all wisdom that we may present all men. There's a completeness in Christ. There's a completeness in who he is and who he has redeemed. And in him is hidden. The word hidden here, it's not like Something squirreled away where we don't know where it is. We, we, we know the passage. I have hidden your word in my heart. It's that same thing. There's, there's a deposit. There's a treasure that is stored up in him. He has all of the, the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in him. So the same God who created all things and took on flesh, he created all things good. He also contains all things good. All treasures, all riches. This is the good stuff. This is the fullness. This is the, this is the perfection. Everything that is needed is contained in him. And so when Paul speaks of wisdom and knowledge, he speaks of something that the Greeks hold highest above everything else. A higher wisdom, a higher knowledge. But Paul addresses the higher wisdom and the higher knowledge, and he tells us where that's found in Romans 11. Romans 11, 30, uh, 33 says this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. All the depths of the wisdom, wisdom and knowledge of God is found in Christ. Knowledge is the apprehension of truth. Being able to understand it. Wisdom is the application of truth. Knowledge, the apprehension, the apprehension of truth. Wisdom is the app- application of truth. And these are both found in their fullness in Christ. So look at this, this string here. I want you to be bound together in love so that you find the riches, uh, the full assurance and understanding in this mystery and in Christ, all things, all the treasures, everything that these false teachers tell you to seek after, they're in Christ. 
They're trying to tell you there's some better treasure out there, but I'm telling you there is nothing. So as we think about all the treasures being in Christ, we should ask ourselves a question. What do I treasure? In a world of materialism and self-gratification, where do I find my value? What is it that I hold above all else? What am I striving for? What do I struggle for? Because anything short of Christ is going to disappoint you. Moth is going to eat through it. Rust is going to destroy it. Economies are going to bleed it out of you. Jesus gives us a picture of this in this beautiful one verse parallel in Matthew 13. Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven in such a way that we should get this. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Look at the detail here. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. This is what Jesus is talking about. The kingdom of heaven is citizenship with me. I am that great treasure. If you find me, sell everything. Like he told to the rich young ruler, leave it all behind. Because if you realize how valuable that is, you will sell everything to get it. That is what we should treasure. That is true riches. That cannot be taken from us. And Paul, in this beautiful rant in Colossians, goes through all these, these things. And so we've already seen through chapter one, he said a lot of these things. Why does he need to repeat himself? Like, shouldn't they, they get it by now? But he tells us why he says these things. Now he gets to the purpose of, of his writing. He sets the theological foundation. He gives us his pastoral concern. And now he tells us in verse four, I say this. In order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This is the first time these false teachers are mentioned directly. There's delusion. There's uh, plausible arguments. This word delude, it means to defraud, to deceive or cheat. Literally mislead by false reasoning. And then plausible arguments. Plausible arguments make sense. They seem legit on the surface. Okay, everything you're saying adds up. It may, they may even be persuasive. It may even convince somebody saying, don't be cheated. These are just, these are deceptions. These are, these are false teachings. They're going to lead some astray. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this. Like, have you ever heard someone argue a lie? Like, you know that they're wrong and they just dig their, their, their heels and they are so convinced of it. I love when people say, it doesn't matter what you believe, just that you really believe it. That's stupid. Because if, if, I, if I really believe that I could jump across the street or if I jump off the, the, the top of this roof and I believe I could make it to the next building, that would not be advised. I'm believing in error. But how often do we have people, do, do we see people? And I've, I've seen so many people debate error, like to their death. And I, I think about um, salesmen. I've known a lot of really good salesmen, guys who sell stuff that they know does not live up to what... They, they, they promise. But, but to make a buck, they will, they will convince you. And this is what, this is what salesmen do. They try to convince you that you need something that you didn't know you needed. Amen. A- amen. So I'll ask you a question. 
could the best VCR salesman in the world sell you? Now, for some of you, I have to explain what a VCR is. It's kind of like a DVD that was wound up on a spool. I may have to explain what a DVD is. But think about technology that's been outdated for 30 years. Could the best VCR salesman in the world sell you? Could he tell you of all of the, 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 the benefits and the beauty and the nostalgia of this? I bet I could sell some of you a VCR. But do we allow false teachings to sell us the same way? It seems silly, like, no, I'm not going to buy a VCR. But will you let someone convince you of something that is just as silly? You know that this is the truth, and yet you listen to these other things. This is why Paul warns them. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So he warns them, but he's still encouraged. Because he, he loves them. He's actually, he actually has confidence in their faith. And so he tells them, verse 5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. He's absent, but he's present in spirit. He struggles for them. He teaches and he intercedes for them as if he was there. He has not forgotten them hundreds of miles away in Rome. And he has confidence and he's, he's rejoicing in them, even though he warns he rejoices. And I love the words he's seen. It, it, we may just, uh, he says, he, we may just read right over this. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order. The word he, he uses here for see is, is the word for see. Like he speaks as if he's behold it with his own eyes. I have heard of it. And so I have confidence in the words from Epaphras. I have seen your good order and your firmness. And these are two interesting words. These are both military terms. Good order. It's a military term that describes rank and file. Those who, who stand with their, their regiment and they, they stand in place. They stand under authority and they stand in good order. That's how Paul describes them. He tells them, I rejoice to see your good order and your firmness. This is another military term. It means your, your feet are rooted in the ground. You are firm. You are good soldiers. You are standing in your rank and file. You are firm where you stand. You are not going to be shaken because there's an enemy who wants to infiltrate your lives. There is, a, there is an enemy who wants to break your good order. There is an enemy who wants to shake the ground underneath you so that you are no longer firm. And he encourages in that. So he's not calling their faith into question. We dealt with this last week. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith. He's encouraging it. He says that he's rejoicing of the firmness of their faith in Christ. He's not calling it into question. He's, he's encouraging them to continue in the faith. And so now that we, we get to that, now there's a transition in this, this second section. Six and seven, uh, he's going to discuss the, the fullness of Christian living. So you've got life in Christ, you've got growing in Christ, and you've got understanding in Christ. And the verb tenses are important here. So we're going to get to the things that are accomplished and the things that are ongoing. So but in this section, and I would say verse six is probably the heart of this whole section and probably the heart of the entire letter. If you want to sum up Colossians, why did Paul write? Colossians. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. The one you received, continue walking in. But what does it mean to receive Christ? So first, Paul gives us an, an idea in 1 Corinthians 15. Please go a few books back to the left. 
So in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives this great long gospel explanation, but he, see, he speaks of receiving Christ. If you receive Christ, you truly receive Christ, you receive him in the fullness of the gospel. You receive, you receive all that you need to know about him. So listen to how Paul describes what they received in, in uh, Corinth, but also in Colossae. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. So a gospel, a good news you received, you stand in it and your salvation depends on it. Now, what is the truth in the fact of this? If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, if you truly believe it, here's how you should have received Christ. For I delivered to you as the first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That is how we have assurance. That is the foundation of the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Then he goes on to all of the the, um, appearances. But how you receive Christ is not just a good teacher. It's not just a baby in a manger. Don't lose that in, in Christmas season. Sorry, guys. But what is of first importance that he died for your sins. And that's what the scriptures behold. And then he, that he rose again that we might rise to new life in him. This is the assurance of the believer. This is how you receive Christ. So I'll take a side note real quick. Um, I want to make a note while we're here. Uh, well, when, when people say I accepted Christ, stop that. That's, that's not biblical. Um, the, the language here of receiving Christ, when we say that we accept Christ, we put the, the, we, we place the work on us and then the result on God, as if what I do has affected God. I accept Christ. We, we, we make it about us reaching out for him. But in fact, we have received Christ. It places the work on God and the result on us as it should be. And it's only because you first receive Christ that you can ever accept or approve anything of God. So there are, there are translations throughout history who have um, translated this as accept. The, the, the sense is not in the word. It's receive or take. Something that has been, been given to you. If you receive the F on a test, doesn't matter if you accept it or not. You have received it. <laughs> But Jesus tells us, without me, you can do nothing, including accept me. You must receive me first and receive me in the fullness of the gospel. Then, when the Holy Spirit changes your heart, then you reach out and accept what God has all, what you have already received. I digress. Um, Staying in verse 6, because it is so important to the letter. Therefore, as you received Christ, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is important too. It's the only time in the letter he uses this full title, Christ Jesus the Lord. Why? Because in the title, Christ Jesus the Lord is the fullness of the gospel. Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God that all of the scriptures, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, all the scriptures, everything up to this point have been looking forward to the Messiah. That's him. Jesus, the firstborn of all creation who took on flesh. He's Lord He is master of all, king of all, over all rule and authority. The God man who took on flesh rules over all. This is essential to the gospel. Because if he is not Christ, if he is not 
the anointed of God, equal with God. If he is not Jesus, if he is not fully man in the flesh, and if he is not Lord of all, you have a different gospel. This formula is important for that reason. So if you've received him, that Christ, Christ Jesus, the Lord. Now he's got four words. Again, that um, that describe walk similar to what he did in verse 10. In verse 10, he talked about walking uh, of chapter one. 110. So he talks about being filled with the spiritual wisdom and understanding, which we've already addressed, so as to walk in the manner worthy of the Lord. So we see this pattern again. You learn and you receive understanding so that you may walk. Walking is always an intended consequence. So as you receive, therefore, walk. Um, this is a recording. Learning is for walking. So we, when a child walks, and they learn how to walk and they get excited they can walk. You don't have to remind them, hey, you can walk now. When, when they take off across the room, this is a lot faster than, than crawling. But you notice there's an intermediate stage where they start to walk and they get a little scared. And then, and then they go back. Well, it's safer crawling. I, I feel more comfortable on the floor. So many Christians do that. You've been taught how to walk in Christ. But you go back to crawling. It's safer down here on the floor. You've been called to walk. This word walk, it implies movement. There's movement in the Christian life. There is no such thing as being called to Christ and standing still. You start in Christ, you continue in Christ. It seems obvious, right? But we have to be reminded. Because it's comfortable standing still. It's comfortable crawling. You've been taught how to walk. It's comfortable sitting in the corner. And not growing. But this is what Paul wants them to do, to continue in Christ. So now as we get into verse 7. These uh, four things that he describes. So the four parallel what we saw in chapter one. I was, I was getting there. Um, verse 10, the four, the four things walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So the four things fully pleasing, bearing fruit, uh, or excuse me, bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, uh, being strengthened in all power and giving thanks. Both of these lists, four things in both chapters, both are anchored by thanksgiving. The four we see in chapter two, rooted in him, built up in him, established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. There's a richness in the walking. There's a descriptive nature in which Paul talks about the walking of the believers. First one, rooted. Uh, this is a term. It's a, it's a building term. Also has some farming connotations. We dealt with that in the first couple of weeks. But this is a building term. When you sink a foundation, you have rooted the foundation. It is firm in the ground and you cannot build the house until you have rooted the foundation. This is something that is past tense. Rooted. It has been accomplished. If you are indeed in Christ, the foundation has been set. He is the cornerstone, the foundation, the apostles and the prophets. Everything is built on top of that. That's the first one. So if you have been rooted in him, if you've been founded in him, if you have been justified in him, you are being built up. This is a continual verb. It's present tense. It's, it's saying that there's an ongoing action. You are being built up in him. And I love this word in the Greek. It is literally the house and the roof. That's what the word means. And so if you are rooted, if, you, if the, the foundation is sunk in him, then the rest of the house is in him as well. Everything, the walls and the, and the roof. It's an ongoing sanctification. The same foundation that was rooted in Christ is now built up in Christ. This 
building language that we see so much throughout Scripture. And if that house is rooted in Christ and it is um, built up in Christ, then it is established and it is established by faith. And that's how we understand this this um, tension between what is accomplished in Christ and our faith, because we truly do believe in him. And is our faith is not in our own ability to build the house. The faith is that in the foundation was sunk. Christ did it. The building was, was built up. Christ did it. And I am established in the faith that my house is in Christ, that I am rooted in Christ, that I am built up in Christ. I am established in the faith, the same faith that he talked about in verse 23 of chapter one. It's synonymous. You're rooted in Christ. You are established in the faith and the faith is in the Christ that you received that gospel. Your faith is in the content of the gospel. So Paul's encouraging them in their walk that they don't begin in, in Christ and continue in the flesh as he warns the church in Galatia, but continue in the house that was built. Continue in the faith that you begun and be established in that. This is how you persevere. Because Christ has done the work and by your faith, you are established in him. And if you understand that, if you understand that the hard work has already been done, the foundation has been laid, the house has been built, the faith has been given to you, you received it. If you understand that and believe that, what's left to do but rejoice? Abundant thanksgiving. This is literally overflowing gratefulness. You are abounding in thanksgiving. And if you have assurance, if you understand that, that is reason for thanksgiving. That is reason for rejoicing, not reluctantly, but abundantly. So what is the abundant life that people speak of? What is the abundant life in Christ? Knowing that your life is in him, knowing that you are rooted in him, knowing that you grow in him. And when you reach full understanding of Christ and know your fullness is him, that is an abundant life no one can take from you. That is riches that will never perish. That is if you are poor and have not a dime to your name under a bridge, you have reason for thanksgiving because you have an eternal inheritance in the son of God. That is reason for thanksgiving. No one can take that from you, but they will try. This is what Paul is getting at here. No one one can take that from you, but look how he transitions into verse eight. Again, this this pattern of instruction into warning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Uh, Paul's concern. He already told them early on, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Stop being influenced by this kingdom of darkness. These empty deceits being taken captive. This is a, a, a great word. Um, all of the old lexicons and, and commentaries, it's kind of like a pirating term. It's, they, they, they describe it as uh, being carried off as booty. Now, it, it, that, that word, it's funny every time I read it because that word takes a little bit of different connotation in, in our culture. But the, the idea is, is being taken captive as a spoil of war. There's a spiritual battle going on here. There are pirates and, and marauders who want to take the, the treasure that you have in Christ and they want to carry you off as treasure. That's the idea here. Don't let them take you captive. Don't let them take you as a spoil of war. And how will they do that? With philosophies. Now, the word philosophy itself is not a bad word. It just means lover of wisdom. Phila, love, Sophia, wisdom. But when your philosophy, 
when your idea of loving wisdom becomes your religion, now we've got a problem. Uh, Josephus, who is a contemporary of, uh, of Paul, describes philosophies as any elaborate system of thought or moral discipline. It's a good understanding that if there's an elaborate system of thought or moral discipline that you are adhering to, and it is not according to Christ, it can lead you astray. It can take you captive. And that's what these false teachers are trying to do. Because whether it is Jewish or Greek, and there was a lot of competing philosophies going on in the time, they're just empty deceit. Be, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. What are these things according to? According to human tradition. Things that are mad, man-made are always going to exalt man, and they're always going to conflict with things that are, that are made by God. Always. It's always going to clash. According to human tradition, according to elemental spirits, is another great word. Uh, this word literally means uh, letters in succession. So it means ABCs. It, so don't get caught off guard with worldly principles 101. They're trying to pull you away with, with, with ABC, ABC philosophies. It's as simple as ABC. And, and you're being, you could potentially be influenced by it. Don't be pulled away with these elemental spirits. These basically, these basic world's principles. Because that's all they have. Basic arguments that are, that are pulling you astray and not according to Christ. First Timothy chapter 4 <clears throat> describes what is going on in their age. And this definitely describes our age. So if you go two books to the right, first Timothy or three books to the right, first Timothy four, he says this. Now, the spirit expressly says that in latter times, we are in latter times. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the insanity of liars whose consciences are seared. There are no shortage of teachings of demons. And liars with seared consciences who want to pull you away from the faith and take you as captive because they know you have treasure in Christ and they want you to be their treasure. He must be the foundation. If you are built in him, if you are rooted in him, if you are established in your faith, you have nothing to worry about. But make sure that you are, because if you're not, they're there. They are lurking around to pull you aside. Now we get into verse nine. So how is it that being saved according to Christ is different? Or excuse me, having assurance in Christ is different than the information that comes from these other philosophies. How do we know it's different? Verse nine, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In case you needed a refresher course from five paragraphs ago. The fullness of deity dwells bodily. No worldly spirit compares to him. Every Philosophy that's trying to reach something higher, something greater. God took on flesh. There is nothing greater. Everything that we read in that strong passage, chapter 1, 15 through 20. Image of the invisible God. Firstborn of creation. Firstborn from the dead. Created all things. Sustains all things. Reconciles all things. Making peace through the blood of his cross. That is the same one that you stand on when the false teachers come in. He is the one that we find our fullness in because he is the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And it's important to understand that dwells here is present tense. It is true. It was true. Then God dwelt in flesh. 
Still true now. Our brother, our high priest sits on his throne. The fullness of the deity still dwells bodily. That's how he intercedes for us. That's how he's our king. He is truly the king of humanity because he still is humanity, fully indwelt by God. How can all the treasures and riches of wisdom and knowledge be in him? He's God. He's fully God. So then how can you have assurance? Look at verse 10. And you have been filled in him. He's fully God. Everything that it can be possessed by God is possessed by Christ. And if you are in him, you are filled with him. Nothing else to be attained. If he is indeed the deity dwelt bodily, and if you are indeed in him, he's full, i.e. you are full. What can these philosophies possibly add to you? We pulled up this verse last week in John 1, 16, but it's so helpful because this should bring it home and give us confidence. Look at John 1, 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Such a simple verse, but so powerful. From his fullness. If he's fully God, you're fully in him. We've received grace upon grace. He is the fountain of living water. He is the true vine. He is all wisdom, all knowledge, all fullness. And from his fullness, we, we receive grace upon grace. So if you sin, you receive grace. If you stumble, you receive grace. If you grow, it is because of his grace and the grace is abounding and the grace never runs dry. That is the fountain of living water. That is why we have assurance of our salvation. Because of that fountain of grace upon grace upon grace. Paul wants them to know that you've been filled in him. This is an encouragement to those who are in Christ. Know you have your fullness in him. And this is our pastoral aim. We've talked about this several times as pastors. But I want to quickly touch on this before we close. Ephesians 4. We go to this so often. What is, what is our goal in ministry? How do we minister? What's the purpose for the church? Ephesians 4, starting verse 11. Again, this is two books earlier in your Bible if you're having a hard time. Ephesians 4.11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, those who were in the church, what's their purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is what Paul's doing. He's encouraging them. This is what we want to do. We want to encourage you until we all attain the unity of faith, that being knit together, and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the goal of those who are given shepherds of God's people and God's word. And why is that important? Look, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. If you are indeed rooted in Christ, the wind will not blow you over. But if you do not have a solid foundation, you're going to be like a, a ship at sea with no rudder. You're going to be tossed to and fro by every doctrine. And I see so many people do this, and it is heartbreaking. There is no need for us to do this. We have the gospel. We have the truth in Christ. There's no need to be tossed to and fro. And this is what I want for you. This is my desire for you. Uh, we're going to pick up in 9 and 10 next week. They're going to set the, the, the tone for us. So in conclusion, we see Paul's instruction, his warning, and yet it's confidence in the body so that they will have assurance 
and perseverance. Same thing for us. The scriptures instruct us. They, they, they warn us. But if you are indeed in Christ, there is confidence. You are rich in him. You are full in him. You have treasure that no one can take from you. And I want you to be encouraged. I want you to have insurance. Assurance. I'm sweating up here because it's what I normally do. But specifically today, because this is so important. This is my this is really my desire for you that you have assurance. And do you believers in the room? Do you have assurance? Do you know that if you walk out that door and a car hits you, you never breathe another breath that you have nothing to worry about? Do you know that? Because Christ is fully God. If you are in him, he has fully given you everything you need. But if you don't know him today, there's nothing you can add to what he's done. You can work yourself to death your entire life and nothing will ever fill you. David sent out a great quote from Charles Spurgeon yesterday, sent in our text to a bunch of the guys. He says, God has so made man's heart that nothing can ever fill it but God himself. And the key to that is Christ is God. That's how we can have full assurance in him. So if you are not, if your faith is not in him, what happens when you die? What happens when you walk out of here? What happens if you do not make it to your pillow tomorrow, tonight or you don't wake up in the morning? Where do you go and why? And if you don't have assurance, we would love to talk to you. See myself, see Jesse, see Jay, see Deshaun, see David, if you could talk. Um, There's so many of us who would love to talk to you. We want you to have assurance. As Christians, we should walk out of here emboldened. And if you are not a Christian, I want you to think about this soberly. Let's pray. Christ alone, my hope is found. He's my life, my strength, my song. It is in him we stand. The mystery of God revealed to all the ages is Christ. And it is in him we have our fullest of assurance. Everyone in this world has to ask the question, what happens after I die? In Christ, we know for certain. And I pray that you do know that. I pray that you are encouraged. And I pray that as a body, we be knit together in love in such a way that we continue to remind and encourage each other of this fact because it is true. I bet my life on it, as should you. Pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen.